0: Well, um, as I mentioned, we started a new series going through the book of Ecclesiastes last week, and um, it's a book that um, if you've read through it, and I hope you read through it this last uh, week, going from beginning to end, uh, but upon initial reading through Ecclesiastes, it seems like a very pessimistic book, a very cynical book, uh, very negative, kind of depressing at times, Uh, and I had uh, joked last week that it seems like you can actually retitle it The Gospel According to Debbie Downer. Uh, Because it really just has this sort of, woe is me, everything is wrong in the world kind of an outlook. And last week, as we looked at our uh, introduction to the book, uh, we were reminded that this preacher uh, in this uh, book that that wrote this, uh, it's really kind of like a little sermon, uh, he's giving his self-reflection, his self-examination on life, and in his wisdom, speaking really plainly about his observations. No makeup. No makeup. Uh, No gloss. Uh, He's just laying it out, calling it like it is, how he sees it. And his observations force us to really look past just the surface of how we take things in and how we view our life. Even though the allure of maybe surfacey thinking and keeping things simple uh, is enticing and tempting for us. Because we don't want to disrupt kind of how we view things when we're kind of content with the way that things are. We wanna avoid uh, difficult um, thinking, avoid difficult topics, uh, difficult realities. Uh, We'd rather just kind of look the other way or brush things under the rug. But we ought to want to have a clear view of life, a clear perspective that goes beyond the surface, even if it does expose realities about our own hearts, Uh, our own lives, our own motives, the way the world works, we should want to have the clearest perception, but oftentimes we don't really want to see those things. It's too hard to deal with realities, and so we'd rather have kind of rose-colored glasses rather than clear glasses. Uh, I remember when, um, this is, I don't know how many years ago now, 15 or 20 years, when HD first kind of became a thing, Uh, I remember that a lot of actors and actresses were not excited about it. All the consumers were excited, but we're not the ones with our faces that are gonna be now on 48-inch TVs. And so they were really nervous. I remember reading different things how uh, even though the technology was getting better, which which should be celebrated, but for them, it was awful because now you're gonna see every imperfection on their face that makeup can actually cover. I remember seeing one of the first... uh, Uh, it was like a little clip of some of the remastered Star Wars right off the bat. And it was amazing seeing this thing cleaned up and clear. And you could see how awful the makeup was. You could see how awful all the gadgets they built. I mean, it looks so hokey. And I was kind of like, oh, put put the filter back on so it looks good. But that's the reality of something like HD or the reality of uh, adjusting our lens. When we really see what life is all about, we really look at situations and circumstances in a really clear lens, sometimes we don't like what we see. We'd rather just kind of have it the old way with the filter on. And so this book really forces us to kind of take the filter off of our eyes to adjust the lens so we can really actually look at our life, look at the way the world works, think beyond just the immediate and what's right in front of us. Some of us, we might avoid going to a doctor or something like that because we don't really want to know that something bad is going on. But think, when you think about that, it's completely illogical. It's gonna go bad and it's gonna get worse if we don't know what's going on. But sometimes we just are fearful of finding out what is really going on. And so Ecclesiastes helps us to really see what is going on in life. What is our life really all about? What is the, uh, the great finish line? What's the goal of this life? He dives into deeper insights He's going to analyze some of the greatest joys of our life, the joys that we look to to bring some kind of satisfaction or meaning. And he's going to find and share with us that ultimately he comes up empty. And the reason that he comes up empty, even pursuing great joys, good God-given things, he pursues these things and comes up empty because he identifies the great equalizer of all things that we're gonna see in this particular section. That no matter what portrait or painting you're creating with your life, that painting is always gonna be framed with death. No matter what happens in your life, the great successes, the great failures, the great pursuits, the life that you build, no matter what you paint with your life, No matter who you are, what your background is, every single one of us will have our portrait framed in death. And so the preacher looks at that great equalizer. He looks at the reality of all of our lives and says, no matter what, we're going to end in death. And so he has this, what seems like a pessimism because death really dulls the glimmer of the shiny objects in our lives. The new gadget, the new relationship, the new house, the new promotion. It's all shiny and great in the moment, but when you consider the end, that we're going to frame it all up, wrap it in a bow tie with death, all of a sudden the shine goes away a little bit. It sobers us up a little bit and gets us to step back and say, what is the big deal about this promotion or this job or whatever it might be? It gets us a little more clear thinking but when we start thinking that way, we don't want to deal with it. We'd just rather put it away and just enjoy that moment. We don't want to deal with the future. And so this reality of death that the preacher is going to show us really actually helps us sharpen our vision. Rather than keep it dull or keep the filter on, it helps us to sharpen our vision, to refine our perspective. So we also don't settle on things like cynicism When we think, oh, we're all going to die, because we can go that way, too. We can either go the hedonistic way of, well, we're all going to die, so let's just party it up, or we're going to say, oh, we're all going to die, so let's just, who cares? We don't want to go in either extremes. We want to find out the proper response to this reality, and this reality of death actually has a way of refining and sharpening our vision, pressing into a life of true meaning and true satisfaction. So I want to pray as we jump into Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Ask the Lord to help us, to sharpen us, sharpen our minds, our vision, our perspective, and ask him to be with us as we open up his word. Father in heaven, you are a holy God. Your name is above all names. It's above all things. Your word and your name, you've elevated above everything. Your thoughts are above our thoughts your ways are above our ways you're just otherly and we're simple we perceive things simply and only under the Sun the way that we see them work in this existence on this planet but you see beyond the Sun You see everything from beginning to end, every minute detail, every last bit you know and you've designed, and you're trustworthy. And so though some of these truths that we wrestle with, they might bring about some some fear, maybe some anxiety, maybe a little bit of hopelessness or cynicism, we can know that we don't have to go there because you are a trustworthy God. Your plan is trustworthy and true. We sang about that this morning already. Your word will stand. Your truth will stand. We can trust you. Even though these truths are challenging for us, we can receive them with joy. So help us to wrestle through these things. We want to understand. We want to see clearly. Even though sometimes we want to brush things under the rug, we want to see clearly so we can have the the life that you've designed us to have. To enjoy the life that you've given us in the way that you meant for us to enjoy it. And ultimately so that we would glorify you and enjoy you and be satisfied with your love and goodness towards us. So help us as we open your word this morning. By your spirit and through the name of Jesus, amen. So Ecclesiastes chapter 2, we're going to start in verse 1. He says, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you. So he's speaking to himself, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. If you weren't here last week, I kind of helped define the word vanity. It doesn't just mean kind of an emptiness. Uh, It really more specifically means kind of like a, a breeze, like it's like this fleeting thing. It's like smoke. It just it kind of comes and goes. But there's also a hint oftentimes in the context of kind of a, an emptiness that we would usually think of with vanity. But he's saying, this pursuit of pleasure, it's just it's vanity. It's just this fleeting thing. Pleasure just lasts for a moment. And I said of laughter, it's, it's mad. It's just craziness. And of pleasure, what's the use of pleasure? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine. With my heart still guiding me with wisdom, which seems to me that he's saying I didn't, you know, go way down this road of drunkenness, but I was just kind of testing the waters, but I was still being guided with wisdom. He's just trying things out. And how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works, I built houses, I planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delights of the sons of man." So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem, and also my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all of my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. So he's like, I I worked hard for this, so I'm going to enjoy it. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold... All was vanity, striving after the wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. So this preacher, he's pursued everything. And he got everything, tried everything. Pleasure and laughter, art and music and creation, nature, women, sex, partying, collecting possessions. He had servants, people serving him. He had greatness. He had affirmation. He had hard work that he could be proud of, building projects. He did all these things. But he realized it was like trying to grab smoke and put it in his pocket. He just couldn't do it. None of it was worthy to bring him that satisfaction. And as I read through the different things that he did and accomplished, it made me think, and I want you to think about this. And not just in a passing thought, but I want you, I want it to take a few seconds to think how you'd complete this sentence. If only I had, or if I only I didn't have, then I would be satisfied. Then I would be happy. And I want you really right now to take a few seconds to think about this. Just off the top of your head, what would you fill in that blank? Man, if I just, if I had a better job, if I was married or if I was married to someone else, if I had more money, if I didn't have this sickness, what would it be that you would fill in that blank? And most of these things that come up in your head, they're not necessarily bad things. A lot of them are actually good things. You desire a lot of good things. And he mentions a lot of good things. He mentions laughter and pleasure, music and art. Speaking of laughter, Abraham Lincoln, who was one who battled with depression his whole life, he said that if it weren't for good jokes, I would surely die because these are vents for my mood and my gloom. Laughter was like a a pressure release valve for him. Solomon also mentions alcohol. Solomon also says that wine is given to make the heart glad, to use in celebration. Even as Nehemiah told the Israelites to eat the fat and drink the sweet wine to celebrate the holiness of a day that they were celebrating. So there's good that can go with that. But we can also use it for bad. For music and art. I know you've probably experienced this if you. Have certain bands or songs that you like. You listen to your favorite song. You're driving down the car. You're singing at the top of your lungs. And then when the song's over, you're just kind of like, you want to sing it again. But you have to move on. Or when the song is over, you look around and you see the dishes are still dirty in the sink. That few moments of happiness and joy is just kind of gone all of a sudden. It didn't really change anything. But for that moment, it kind of released something in you. And brought a little bit of joy, but it was just like grasping after the wind. It doesn't last. He mentions nature and creation. There's something amazingly refreshing about being outdoors, being outside, walking in nature, getting fresh air, beholding the creation of God and marveling at even our pets and the personalities they have. It's just a, a trippy thing for us to really see what God has designed, and that's good for us. It's good for our soul. Or maybe to, to watch something that you plant, a small seed, and over the course of months, it turns into something you can actually eat. It's amazing what God has done. But all these things are just temporary. And I look at this section, and I take note of a few words here that stuck out to me as I'm reading through this. Look what, look what the preacher is describing here in verse 4. He says, I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted them in all kinds of fruit trees. He's saying, I, I created. I made this world that I live in, and it was good. and I made myself gardens and planted all kinds of fruit trees. You know what this sounds like to me? It sounds like the book of Genesis. It sounds like this preacher's creating his own world. Except the thing is, instead of God creating this world, look what he says, more than 20 times in this section alone. I, myself, I planted the vineyard, I did the work, it was my toil, I did this, I built all these things, I gathered for myself singers, concubines, I did these projects, I had more than anyone in the world before me. It's the same language as Genesis except instead of God created, it's I created. The preacher is trying to create a world that really doesn't exist anymore. He's trying to create his own paradise out of his own ingenuity, trying to create this self-made heaven on earth. He's trying to create his own kingdom that is going to bring him satisfaction and pleasure and fulfillment. That's what he is trying to create. And church, I don't think there's a person in here that has not tried to do the same exact thing that this preacher is doing. We try to create our own paradise. We want to create our own Garden of Eden in our life. We set up our life. We make our decisions in life based on what is gonna make us most comfortable and happy. We are trying to create a world that just does not exist any longer. We are in between two worlds, the Garden of Eden and the coming kingdom. We're in this in-between world. And somewhere along the line, we got convinced that we can create those worlds now and here that we deserve the world that was or the world that's going to be. We deserve it right now. And so Solomon is revealing this, that he sees, I, I, can't, I can't build this world that I'm striving after. It's not possible. It can't happen. It won't happen. It's just chasing after the wind. A dog has a better chance catching his tail than we have chasing the wind. It actually makes a dog not look insane. It makes a dog kind of look, you know, reasonable. You see a dog chasing his tail, you think that's so stupid. But then you think about what we're doing, and we're worse than a dog chasing his tail. The dog actually has a chance to catch his tail, yet we don't have any chance in finding ultimate satisfaction and fulfillment in the things that we chase after. And we think our dogs are silly. They've got a much better chance of getting what they want than us getting what we want. We're chasing after smoke and wind and vapor. You know, this is, this is what it's kind of like. All these things, these are good things that God has given us, marriage and jobs and whatever, but it's like they're, they're buckets, and they've got these little holes in the buckets, and we go and we fill. We want to just fill our bucket and have the satisfaction. We're walking along with our buckets, and by the time we get a few yards down the road, we realize the bucket's empty. For a short time, it kind of brings us this satisfaction, this water that satisfies for a moment, but It leaks. None of these things that God gives us are meant to hold the water permanently. They can't bring us ultimate fulfillment. They all leak because none of these things are God. They can't satisfy us. They can't fulfill us. We can get some temporary joy, but it's like just chasing after the wind. It's like a a leaking bucket. And we just keep, in our madness, we keep filling the bucket, and we just wear ourselves out chasing after the wind. And so he says here in verse 12, this bleak realization that he has, because the reality for us is we ought to see ourselves not as permanent residents, but as pilgrims walking through this place. We should see ourselves as misfits, and I don't mean problem causers, though sometimes we're going to cause problems, but that we do not fit. We should see ourselves as misfit in this world because we were created for a different world but we're in this one. And then we try to fit into this world and that's why we're dissatisfied because we weren't meant to fit in this world as it is. And so he has this realization, he says in verse 12, "'And so I turn to consider wisdom "'in contrast with madness and folly. "'For what can the man do who comes after the king? "'Only what has already been done. "'And I saw there's more gain in wisdom than in folly, "'as there's more gain in light than in darkness.' The wise person has his eyes in his head so he can see clearly, but the fool walks in darkness. So he acknowledges that it's more profitable to have wisdom than foolishness. But, look what he says right then, And yet I perceived that the same event happens to all of them. What's this same event? It's death. It says in verse 15, Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. So why have I been so wise? Why even pursue wisdom then? If I'm gonna go to the same place and I said in my heart that this also is vanity, just chasing after the wind, chasing after wisdom even is vanity because I'm gonna die as well. For of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance. I'm gonna die and be forgotten. The fool is gonna die and be forgotten seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool Church, you can have a a good, wise, moral life. You can have laughter, pleasure, sex, money, affirmation, accolades, hard work. And you can do all these things both foolishly and wisely. But the wise man is going to be no more remembered than the foolish man. Living a wise and moral life will save you no more than living a foolish and immoral life. I want to say that again. Living a wise and moral life will save you no more than living a foolish and immoral life. Your wisdom and your morality cannot save you. You also are going to die. That's the bleak reality. And so what does he say in verse 17? He says, so I hated life. I hated life. I looked at it. This whole existence and the way this works out, this economy of life and death and foolishness and wisdom, and I just hated it. Because what's done under the sun was grievous to me, for all its vanity and striving after the wind. I hated all my toil, all the work in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who comes after me. I'm going to accumulate all this stuff and then give it to the next guy. And I don't know what he's going to do with it, and I have no say over it. So I hated all the toil and all the stuff that I gathered because I can't take it with me. Who knows whether he's going to be wise or a fool? And yet he, that person inheriting, is going to be the master of all that I worked for and used my wisdom under the sun. This is vanity. And so I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill has to leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This is vanity, and it's a great evil. It's awful. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. It's stressful. There's anxiety thinking about this. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. It's a miserable realization. And this is why we'd rather have the filter, instead of being able to see in HD, because we'd rather just have the, the ignorance that brings our bliss. To think through this, we're, we're kind of sitting here going, oh yeah, this is, this is pretty lame. I don't, I don't like this. I'd actually rather walk around in some ignorance than not knowing this, not really thinking. This. this is all just for nothing in the end. But in verse 24, he gives us, an early clue. As I mentioned last week, it's gonna be important for us to jump to the end of this this Ecclesiastes sermon every week because he's going somewhere. We don't wanna just read this out of context, but he's gonna give us a clue, an early clue in this little sermon that's gonna give us a hint of his future ultimate observation, his final view and assessment of life. Here's what he says in verse 24. There is nothing better, there's nothing better For a person, then he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil, in his work. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. First time God is mentioned in this book. For apart from him, apart from God, who can eat or who can even have enjoyment? Who can smile if it wasn't for God? God who created our mouths and created feelings and emotions and pleasant things, who gives us breath. We we can't enjoy anything apart from God. For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy, but to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give to one who pleases God. That also is vanity and striving after the wind. So he seems to kind of contradict himself a little bit. He says that it's vanity and just this fleeting reality just to pursue and work and and amass different things and eat food. It's just kind of vanity. But here he says there's nothing better than that. So which is it? It's actually both. And he's not contradicting himself. But what's different about how the preacher phrases the enjoyment of our work and our toil in these verses is that he emphasizes differently the way in which we do these things, how we pursue these things, and the perspective we have in these particular things, our work, our money, our pleasure, our hobbies, the goal and purpose of them. Whether we work or eat or drink, we should do so with gratefulness, doing it in a way that honors the one who gave it to us. He makes this clear that we have all these things because of God, and we can't enjoy them if it wasn't for God giving them to us. So I'll put it this way. Most things that you and I partake in, most things that we pursue, maybe to be more specific, we pursue them to gain something. We want something out of the pursuit. There's a goal we have, whether it's pleasure, happiness, a good memory, more money, intimacy, affection, affirmation. We pursue the things that we want because we want something from them. That's why we pursue things. It's to get something, that's that's why we go after things. There's a desire in our heart that is driving us to pursue a promotion or a relationship or to get out of a relationship. There's something in us that we want. So for instance, we, we work at our jobs to gain a good living, an income, a good home. And we aim to find something, some kind of a job that brings us some fulfillment. We want a job that, that satisfies us we kind of find there's a deeper purpose rather than just a paycheck. Maybe our title gives us some kind of badge of honor or esteem among colleagues or people in the community. And if our work, the job we have is kind of unsatisfying, if it's not the most glamorous job, or if our job doesn't provide the lifestyle that we want or the lifestyle that other people have, we maybe feel let down. Maybe we feel a little inferior, a little insecure around others. We feel a little empty. Or maybe it's relationships. We, fulfill, we, we chase after relationships to bring fulfillment, to fill a hole of emptiness. This hole that we have of loneliness. And in our culture today, more than ever, sexual fulfillment and satisfaction and expression is considered now to be a fundamental human right for us. So we have a right to be sexually satisfied, to be fulfilled. We, we believe it's a human right now. Or maybe it's pleasure or laughter or hobbies. We pursue these particular things to give us meaning, to give us joy, to give us outlets, some kind of a reward that we've worked for, we've earned it. Maybe at the end of a long day, we get to look forward to this little hobby or whatever it might be that we get to enjoy as a result of our hard work. A little reward. We're working for the weekend, Or maybe it's something even as trivial as eating food. We eat food usually for some kind of a means to an end. It's just fuel for the day or to keep our our, our bodies healthy, to give us energy. And you'll notice that a lot of these examples I shared aren't necessarily bad things we're pursuing. And and some of the, the end result aren't necessarily bad things. It's good to eat in a way that gives you fuel and energy. But all these things, we pursue them because we want something. We want something from them. We want to gain something. And the preacher's point here is when we do that to these objects, we're just chasing after the wind. We're chasing after these things to give us something that they were not designed to give us. They weren't meant to to give us and then so when you don't have the relationship you want or the person that you're with does not satisfy you in the way that you want them to you get frustrated at them you're expecting them to be something that they were not designed to be you want your spouse or your boyfriend or your girlfriend or your best friend to to satisfy all your longings for relationship and fulfillment and they were not designed by God to do that you look to your job to bring you some kind of uh, great pleasure, some kind of meaning in life. But your job wasn't designed to do that. You're chasing after these things to do something for you that only God himself can do. It's like sometimes, so I, I work around the house a lot outside and sometimes I, I can't find the right tool. And I know the tool's like up in the shed and I'm going, that's a long ways away. So what do I do? I do the lazy thing. I just find the closest thing that sort of resembles the thing that I need. I pick that thing up and I start wedging things and hammering things and hitting things and then what happens? I get frustrated because it's not working. Well, what's the problem? The problem is not the object I picked up, the problem's me. I expect this tool to do something that the manufacturer did not create it to do and I'm getting mad at it. And this is what we do in our marriages, in our relationships, at our jobs. We get upset at the things that that God has given us. He's given these things to us as gifts and then we get mad at the gift because it's not working right. But it wasn't meant to work in the way that we want it to work. And so the preacher here, he's pointing out the difference of how we pursue these things. What if your job doesn't bring you satisfaction and fulfillment? What if it doesn't? Or let me put it maybe more starkly, because some of you might have jobs that that bring you satisfaction, and they bring you fulfillment. What if your job isn't supposed to bring you satisfaction and fulfillment? Do you ever think that maybe that's not the purpose of your job? That that's not why God created work and jobs? That we're not supposed to find our identity in it? We're not supposed to find satisfaction and fulfillment, but, but we believe that that's what we're supposed to do, and if we don't have that, then we're either doing something wrong or we haven't been given the life that we deserve. We feel like it's a right of ours to have and work in a job that gives us fulfillment and satisfaction, but that's not why work was created. What if, what if your job is just meant to teach you how to be faithful, how to be humble? What if your job is meant to teach you how to be a servant? or just to provide income for you and to teach you how to be generous? What if your job is actually given to you as a gift from God to sanctify you and not give you fulfillment and satisfaction and comfort and pleasure? I don't know where in the Bible it says that we do these things, we get jobs in order to satisfy us and fulfill us. It might be a completely different reason why God has given you a particular job. What if it doesn't build up your your reputation or your legacy? But it's meant to do something else, to teach you servanthood or humility. What if relationships, marriage, sex... What if it isn't actually something that you should pursue to get something or to gain something, some ultimate conquest or pursuit of intimacy? What if it's not meant to be for that? What if instead you actually thanked God for the friends and your spouse or whatever people God has brought in your life? What if you actually said, God, thank you for the people you've brought in my life. And for the people you haven't brought in my life, I still want that spouse or a different spouse or a closer relationship. You haven't given that person to me. maybe because you know that I don't need that right now. And I'm gonna thank you for what you have given me because you've given me these people as gifts. The spouse that I have is a gift from you. And I don't wanna look to them to be my ultimate satisfaction fulfillment because you didn't design them to be that for me. You're supposed to be that for me. What if instead we approached all of our relationships and rather than getting upset at them when they don't fulfill our needs, we actually just thank God that he gave them to us as gifts. We look at our job and we don't say, oh, I wish I had this job or that job or paid more or this guy makes more money than me. What if you said, God, thank you. You gave me a job. I get to go to work and provide for my family and I get to serve people at work and grow in humility. This is awesome what you've given me. It's not my favorite job in the world, but you've given me a job. What if we actually started thanking God for what we have rather than complaining about what we don't have? Because when we complain about what we don't have, we're just striving after the wind, trying to put smoke in our pocket. What if laughter and hobby isn't supposed to soothe all of our pains and help us escape from reality? But what if instead you enjoy the things God gives you, your hobbies, your pleasures, a, a good funny movie? You just enjoy them as simple pleasures from a loving father, just a gift, but not an ultimate satisfaction, fulfillment, escape from reality kind of a gift, but just a gift for the moment. Gifts that he might give you in one season, and he might rightfully and wisely take away in another season. But you don't complain, you just say, God, you gave me a particular gift, a hobby, some kind of laughter and joy for this season, and now I don't have that right now for whatever reason. But you gave it to me for the time you did, and I'm thankful for it. I'm not going to strive after it and try to chase the wind. I'm just going to enjoy what you give me. What if food isn't actually just supposed to be utilitarian, a tool, a means to an end of just fuel? And I use this example just because I I want it to, to help us think through everything, every last little detail in our life. But what if it's actually food is something we can actually really enjoy every single bite and every single sip? And we sit, take a sip of whatever we're drinking or a bite of what we're eating. And it's not just fuel, utilitarian. We just kind of do it mindlessly. We're just eating on the run, eating on the go. But what if every time we enjoyed a bite or a drink of something, we just said, God, you gave me this, this, this meal today. You created this, this, this apple. I love how you use the creativity of people to make this fascinating drink that has this different flavor and it refreshes me. God, you gave this to me. This is your gift to me. I mean, let's think through this. This is why I use the example of food because if it was just to be this utilitarian tool that we use, why didn't God just make our bodies to be solar powered? Why didn't we get our fuel from the sun? The sun could definitely power us if God designed us that way. But instead, what did God do? He created different types of food with different flavors, sweetness and tart and salty. And then he gave us taste buds on our mouth and on our tongue and we can actually taste the different things. So he didn't want us just to refuel in a utilitarian way, just you sit on the sun and now you're charged for the day. He wanted to make something that's actually enjoyable, a gift given, that we can actually glory in him. He didn't even make all the food taste the same. He has all these different types of food because he wants us to receive them as gifts, not to get something out of it, but just to simply enjoy it as a gift given. And so the preacher doesn't, he he knows these things aren't ultimately meaningless, because if they were, God would not have created taste buds. There is a purpose for these things. Our problem, and this is what he's pointing out in his Pursuits of Life, is that we've turned those things into ultimate things, into gods, into idols, things that we go after to bring us satisfaction and fulfillment, and when we don't have them, we're miserable. That's the chasing after the wind. So what he says is, so I found that it's good to receive these things as from God and just enjoy what God has given you. Don't chase after them to make them ultimate, but just enjoy them as God gave them to you because that is from God. These gifts are from God. So we don't see our jobs or relationships or our role in life as something that we've attained. That was the preacher's problem. I built this, I built that, but it was nothing. Don't build your career. Don't build your dream life and chase after that as it's something that you want to gain, something to earn. But see everything in your life as given to you as a gift of God. And he gave you exactly what you need. What you have in your life right now is exactly what you need right now. I tell our Baseball team, a lot of times. You know, we we talk about different kids on the team and, you know, the the strengths and weaknesses of some of them. And, And I tell them when we go out on the field, I said, Boys, we have the exact team we need right now to go out and play this game. We don't need a bigger hitter or a bigger pitcher or a better catcher, we have exactly who we need. And it's just my way of telling them, like, we are a team. We're in this together, and we have exactly who we need. Church, your life, you have exactly what you need right now. If you don't think that's true, then what you're saying is that God is not providing for you. You're saying that God's breaking his promise towards you. But you have exactly what you need right now, and so you can give God thanks for exactly what he has given you when we accept the fact that we're all going to die, we learn to receive God's gifts for what they are in themselves. They're gifts. Temporary, fleeting gifts given to us right now rather than looking to those things as ultimate, as some kind of pursuit to gain to make us happy. 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul says, for as, as for the rich in this present age, this world... Charge them not to be haughty, not to be prideful, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but rather on God. God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. He's given you your specific friend, spouse, job, car, home, hobby, personality. He's given you that to enjoy. Don't become prideful and try to build up your little kingdom. We don't set our hopes on the uncertainty of money or jobs or relationships, but we receive these things as gifts. We don't want to chase after the wind and look to these things for ultimate fulfillment, satisfaction, purpose, meaning, and whether we're given much of one particular gift or little or very high quality or very low quality, we realize that they're all from God, gifts given from God. Gifts that we do not deserve, gifts that we did not earn, though we think we do earn them, we do not earn them, God gives them, and gifts given for us to enjoy. To enjoy, not to worship. To enjoy, not to make them ultimate. The preacher recognizes that death makes everything hopelessly futile, but the good news for us is that though that is true, it is the great equalizer, God himself came to this earth to put death To death. And I'll say again this week that everything we read about here in chapter two, just like we did with chapter one, everything that the preacher says about our human existence is true. We all chase after the wind. We all build our kingdoms only to see them crumble eventually, and we all die. It's true about every single human being except for one, and that's Jesus. Jesus doesn't chase after the wind. He doesn't grasp at things and not get what he grasps for. He holds the entire universe by the word of his power. Everything. Every breeze of wind, every puff of smoke exists because he spoke it into existence. Every atom, every particle in this universe exists because of him. He's building his kingdom, and it's not gonna crumble. It's a kingdom that will not be shaken. We build our kingdom and it crumbles. He builds his kingdom and it lasts forever. We all die. He came, he died, but then he conquered death. He conquered death, and he rose, and he showed his power over death, and he made it so that death would have no more sting. And so now as we look at this book of Ecclesiastes and we know that this reality, death is the great equalizer for us who are chasing after a temporary home and wanting to make it permanent. But we also know that that death, that very real death has no more sting. And because we know our Redeemer lives, we know that we're gonna stand with him on that day. We know that we too, because of him and because we're in him, because we're hidden in the cleft of the rock of ages, we know that we too also will live. And our life now, even in this world, is not in vain, because we're hidden in him whose life is not in vain. And so in the now, we gladly receive the great and many gifts that he's given to us, and we enjoy them. Not to use them as things to give us meaning, Or a means to some greater end, but to enjoy them as unmerited, generous gifts from God above. And above all that, we gladly receive the greatest gift that He has given us, which is the gift of Himself. He gave us Him. And we receive that gift, and He's not a means to some other end. He is the end, He is the goal, He is the pursuit of our heart is to pursue to know this great God, our Father, who gave us all good things and took the vanity of life and gives it purpose, meaning, satisfaction, fulfillment, and an eternal hope through his Son. So I want to pray and thank the Lord that though this, this thing called death is real, these observations are real, but they're framed now, not just simply in death, Maybe death now becomes sort of the mat in the frame, but the frame now is eternal life. Death is there, it frames the portrait, but now the ultimate frame is this future hope we have in Jesus. And there is a dark mat of death, but our lives are framed up in Jesus Christ, our living hope. Father, we thank you thank you that we have a great hope amidst a life of hopelessness and emptiness we see and we know that death really is a reality it's a one to one ratio and so all the things that we strive after to build our little kingdoms are just it's futile it's vanity It doesn't mean these things are evil or bad or we should get rid of all these things, but it means that we need to use them for the purpose they're intended to be. And so God, help us to receive everything you've given us, all the people you've brought in our lives. We want to see all these things as gifts given from you. Given in certain moments of our life for a certain purpose and taken away in certain parts of our lives. We trust your wisdom, we trust your plan, the working of your mind and your will in our lives. We know that you're trustworthy and true, that your word is fixed in the heavens. Help us to see with eyes of faith, to be content with what you provided for us. Help us, O Lord. We love you, we thank you for your faithfulness towards us, your mercy and your grace that you give us each and every day. All these things given to us because you love your son and we're hidden in him. And so we ask for all these things in the mighty name of your son, Jesus. Amen.